Welcome to the teaching ministry of Faith Bible Church. We pray as you listen to the following message, you will be encouraged and equipped to passionately pursue Christ. For more information, please visit our website at fbcevansville.com. Good morning. You all quieted down, so I assume that means I need to start. So, Glad you could be here. We're beginning a new Sunday school series in the auditorium, obviously called Christ and No More. We'll be considering the sufficiency of Christ, and I think a description of the class is contained kind of now in this introduction of it, so we'll get to that in a moment. I want to begin by praying. Brother Keith, in here somewhere, just mentioned in his reading this morning, A.W. Pink on John chapter 6, where um, you have Jesus with his disciples, and you have thousands of people who need fed, and obviously they don't have the food to do it. His disciples said, even if we give this bread out now, it's not enough for everyone to get even just a little bit. Then Jesus has them sit down. He himself breaks the bread, blesses it, and at the end of that story, you remember, there are baskets and baskets full of bread, and pink, Keith said, kind of drew the picture from that, the idea from that. When we do things in our own strength, there's not even enough for a little bit for everyone, but the grace of Christ, when we're relying on him, is enough for there to be grace left over. And that's very much our desire for this class. This isn't something we undertake either in the speaking of it or in the listening of it that I believe in our own strength we can gain a benefit from. I fully believe that, fully. I believe that very convictedly this morning as I was going over this. This really has to be God providing. And I'm confident that he will and that there will be baskets left over. Some of our lessons will be on particular passages of scripture, but more than likely most most of our lessons will be focused on a wide variety of scriptures. So if you're trying to follow along in your Bible, I deeply apologize. I don't always pause long on passages. Some I do. Some say that the unexamined life is not worth living. I believe that was Plato originally. And those who say that are right. You realize that all of us are born here alike into this world in exactly the same way, not by our choosing, But here you are. And once you are here, it's fitting that you should ask the question, why am I here? Those who don't try to discover why they are here are like travelers who move from one landmark to another landmark to another landmark, but without any sense of the direction where they are heading in the end. What is the goal? What's the destination that you're trying to move toward? It's true that there is a small joy we experience in this in-between. We've been born, that was our start. We're moving towards some end of our lives. Right now we're on the landmarks in-between, step by step. You have a job, you get a promotion, something happens in your family, you're dealing with this crisis, you overcome that crisis, you go to school, you do this, you do that. Those are the small in-betweens, but we realize none of those are the end in themselves. If those are the end in themselves, today we'll be welcoming up high school and college graduates during the service. Those high school and college graduates could all lay down and die because they've reached the end of their life by accomplishing that education. And we know that's not the case. We see all of these steps in our life, wherever you may be in your life, as steps that propel us toward a destination. There is a joy in the in-between but we recognize that it's only an in-between. 
there is an end. If there's no end, then the in-between is the end. And that's not the case. There's some destination we move toward. And what I'm most concerned for myself and for you as the people of God that you not do is not have a sense of that end or direction toward which you live your life. And the reason is because you may then live the whole in-between, landmark to landmark. You marry, you get a house, you get a dog, you get a job, you accomplish all kinds of dreams eastward, 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 and you come to the end of your life, and then you realize that what you really wanted to get to at the end of your life was far in the west, and your whole life you move the opposite direction. And that is a wasted life, because it's a life that is not examined in regard to its end, the outcome. Why are you moving eastward or westward? A very horribly concrete example of this are the many businessmen who lose their families. Some of you maybe have been parts of families like this, but there's no father who first holds his newborn child in his arms and thinks in his mind, I will alienate this child by my work ethic in the next 20 or 30 years. No father thinks that. They love the child. They have a desire for the benefit of this, this son or this daughter. But what happens after that? Without properly considering the end, the long-term outcome, then this businessman just makes little in-between steps in the wrong direction. One more late meeting, one more business trip away from family, one more opportunity missed to invest in those he loves. He's only moving little by little. He's not thinking long-term, I alienate my family. He's just thinking of the landmarks. But because he hasn't thought of the destination, then when he finally reaches it, he realizes he's not where he wants to be. And it just happens one little step in the wrong direction at a, at a time. That is an unexamined life. And it's not worth living. But change the scenario a little bit. Imagine there's a man and he has honestly examined his life. He has an end, a destination in mind, and that is the unity of his family. He's a family man. And so he makes choices to move toward blessing and benefiting his family and bringing the family together. That's an examined life. Little decisions lived in light of the destination. But now we introduce one conundrum. And that is that this man, it's now 1942 and he's a German man. And the only way that he's going to secure the complete unity of his family behind his leadership is if he seals his allegiance to Nazism, because they support Nazism. So what do you have here? If this man pursues his goal to the uttermost, he still lives a life not worth living. And the reason this time is not because it's an unexamined life, but because it's an examined life with an unworthy end. So if we're going to be living lives that matter, that are meaningful lives in the end, Two things are required. One, that your destination or your goal that you're living toward is worthy of your soul. It's what you were created to live for. And secondly, that's not enough. Secondly, the little landmarks moving in that direction, they have to be consistently moving that direction. So an examined life, am I living in light of my vision? And then a vision that's worth living for. 
And if you have those two things, whatever the other details of your life, and the details of our lives will differ, but whatever those details may be, if you have those two things, then your life matters, is meaningful, is deep, is rich, and in the end, you are satisfied, and you say, I did not waste my life. It is my conviction and the conviction that will be brought forward in this class that when you look at the worthy, the only worthy end or aim of any human life, it is Jesus Christ. He is the best, the ultimate aim and end, and the only worthy life is one that's moving every day, including today, landmark by landmark in that direction of Christ. So if you're curious then, well, what are those landmarks that lead us toward Christ? What are the decisions I make today, practically in my life, that lead me in that direction so I live a worthy life? Well, that's why I offer this class, this series. If you are not quite convinced that Christ is the direction you should be moving, that's why I offer this particular lesson. So that is our focus today. Why should Christ be the ultimate aim of your life? And I'll approach that sort of unconventional way. And the reason it's necessary to have a class like this one focused on why Christ should be the end is because in our world, one-third of the entire population consents to the idea that Christ should be the end for which you live your life. One-third of our globe is Christian. But... The majority of that third, I don't know percentage-wise, but the majority of that third does not live in a life consistently toward Christ. They simply don't. And we're not interested right now because life is so brief. We're not interested in mere theories that have no practical impact on a person's life or decisions. Those mean nothing to us. Those are useless to us. We want an idea, a conviction that moves us in a particular direction, that alters the decisions that we make. If you pull aside that panel of pretense upon most human hearts in the world, what you find in there is not Christ. What you find in there is Protagoras' very old maxim, which is man is the measure of all things. Protagoras said that long, long ago, and it was revived, so to speak, during the Renaissance more recent centuries, but it wasn't really revived because that's always existed. There have always only been two directions to live your life in. One is Christ and he is the worthy end of life and the other is ourselves under so many subcategories of whatever that looks like for you. Those are the two directions to live your life. And the argument of this class is that although this may be appealing and is appealing and has some pleasure in the in-between and even the end, this is what God calls you to live your life for, toward Christ. Man is not the measure of all things. Christ is the measure of all things. And it is a tragedy that any human life should be spent in pursuit of the self and reach that destination. It will never satisfy. You are as flimsy a goal for your own life as paper mache that's wet. If you find yourself dissatisfied with your life, You can blame the condition on all kinds of circumstances that you are experiencing. But those don't contribute nearly so much as the fact that a dissatisfaction in this life comes primarily from not living consistently toward Christ. Any swerving from the path, any inconsistencies toward self, those are the things that produce dissatisfaction.
To choose Christ then as the destination and move in his direction, that is the worthy life. And what does that require? Not one moment of excitement. Not one Sunday school class that produces an eagerness, although I hope it does. That's not enough. A life lived consistently toward Christ requires many, many moments of emotion and some moments of no emotion whatsoever, but just a grim determination that this is right until emotion returns. That's what's required. So if you are going to continue in this path toward Christ in a practical way in your day-to-day life and decisions, then the very first and maybe the most important thing is that you must be convinced that that is the life you want to live. I can't decide that for you. Is that really the life you want to live toward Christ? Persistence in that direction requires that. So if you want to live an examined life with a worthy end, you want to walk that way, you have to be convinced that Christ is the worthy end, that he satisfies, that sometimes walking in his direction when you don't feel like it is the right thing to do because you know in the end it is right that joy will come with that. So as a sort of first argument before you for why you ought to do that, I'm going to offer, which I realize is not precisely an argument, a biography. And just to make all the scientists and logicians even angrier, I'm also going to appeal to statistics. But even though biography and statistics, they don't prove things finally, but they do suggest things on a human level. So let's start there. The biography I want to offer for a consistent life in one direction is the Apostle Paul. In 2013, Times, the website, posted an article that listed, by a somewhat scientific measure, the 100 most significant figures in all of history. These are the people who've had the greatest impact on the rest of the world, especially in the way people think. The 34th person on that list of all time, far above many of the kings and philosophers of history, was a man named Paul. And You know him as the man who wrote much of your New Testament, the Apostle Paul. He wasn't always that way. In fact, the Apostle Paul began as Saul. Saul was born north of Palestine. Palestine's where most of the things in the Bible happen. Saul was born north of that to a Jewish family more a Roman and Greek flavor of his life. He descended there on Jerusalem at a young age to study under one of the greatest Jewish teachers of all time. He was more ambitious than most of his peers who were also studying. And what this meant for Saul of Tarsus, where he's from, what this meant for Saul was that he was prepared to live a life full of the esteem and the honor of all his countrymen. This is what people dream to be. This is, a, in some sense, a sort of celebrity in Saul's day. Trained under one of the greatest teachers, no doubt to have a stable, steady income for the rest of his life, to be a teacher people looked up to. And in one moment, Saul of Tarsus in history, if that had been his whole life, none of us would ever know him. But in one moment, Saul took all of that, the prospects of wealth, of fame, of popularity, of the approval of his peer group. He took all of that and he threw it to the wind. He became himself a follower of the Christ he had tried to stamp out before. And the moment that Saul did that, renamed Paul, whom we know now, his life became very hard. 
In fact, he lived an unusually difficult life. Many of the things that you seek in your life, he gave it away by becoming a follower of Christ. He lost the honor and respect of his countrymen. Most of them, not most, many of them sought to kill him, who before would have praised him and kissed his feet. Very few people in the history of the world have fallen so far from mankind's graces into the hatred of mankind as Paul in his day. He um, physically did not experience a lot of pleasure. He suffered. He was beaten with rods, with whips, with stones. He never married that we're aware of. This is the Apostle Paul, and he gave it all away because he wanted to live a life with Christ at the end and to follow consistently in that direction. And for him, it meant the cost of everything else. But we don't know the Apostle Paul today because of all the things he lost. We know the Apostle Paul today because of what he thought of all the things he lost. So many people have lost tons of things in this world. But the way he treated it, here's what he says. He says, looking back, whatever gain I had, honor, fame, money, I counted as loss for the sake of Christ, because I wanted him. Indeed, I count everything as loss because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus, my Lord. That's the end of his life, knowing Christ Jesus. For his sake, I've suffered the loss of all things, and I count them as rubbish in order that I may gain Christ. As a biography, as a sort of first argument, here is a man, flesh and blood, like ourselves in that way, of a like nature with us, living a life consistently in the direction of Christ. Because he was convinced in the engine of his mind that a life lived toward Christ, toward knowing Christ, is a life of a higher value and worth and greatness and satisfaction than anything else. He didn't fake this. He was convinced of it. So then, knowing Christ in his life required a loss of everything else for him. And every landmark leading to Christ, so many of them were suffering, were being stoned with stones. But because he was convinced, no, this is the life I want to live. This is the best life. He kept moving in that direction. He didn't pretend that he wanted Christ. He really wanted Christ. 34th most influential in the world. And a mouthpiece of Jesus ranked first on that list, of course, of the most significant people in history. For Paul, Christ occupied the highest seat of office, this sort of first principle, this sort of ultimate aim. Not in a social or a cultural sense, a cultural Christian or cultural adherence to a religion for acceptance in a, in a closed group. That wasn't Paul. He was kicked out of the closed group. He did this because he was convinced that Christ is the one worthy aim for any human soul. And he proved that he was convinced of that by an entire lifetime moved in Christ's direction. Nothing diverted him from that sort of westward trail toward Christ. If you can see, like Paul, clearly in the night sky the North Star, unobscured by clouds, then it may be a stormy sea for you, but you will always know which direction to move in. And that was Paul's life, stormy seas, but always in the sky. There was no obscurity of that star. It was Christ. So he always knew which direction to move, and he always moved in that direction, believing it was leading him to his destination. You may be aware that a very good and godly mother 
many centuries after Paul, would speak of the same kind of single-mindedness in one direction when she gave this counsel concerning the definition of sin, of what we shouldn't do with our lives. She said, whatever weakens your reason impairs the tenderness of your conscience, obscures your sense of God, takes off your relish for spiritual things, whatever increases the authority of the body over the mind, that thing is sin to you. It's off limits, however innocent it may seem in itself. This kind of living in a particular direction does not ask small questions like, is this too far? Can I go this far towards sin? Is this too far? You see, Paul's not asking those kinds of questions. It doesn't matter how innocent something seems. The question, the only question, the final question for anything is, is this particular act, this particular decision moving me toward knowing Christ better? That's it. That's the final question. You might think, that that kind of a life, when you think of it, okay, Paul, great man, of course, on those top 100 lists, but you're thinking of yourself. You might think that seems like a very constraining and a narrow way to live, to cut out everything that would distract, even if it's good and right and innocent, from your knowing Christ more deeply. Well, you see, that's a wrong way to phrase it because if you're moving in any direction, it's very narrow. Because you can only move in one direction at a time. If you're living all out for the world, you're not freer and open to all kinds of things. You're still just moving in one direction. You're making one decision at a time. It's just toward a different end. And when Christ summons us to make Him the end of our life, you're still just moving in one direction. You're not confined. If you're going to live all out for the world, for beauty, for sex, for drugs, for alcohol, or for those kind of less crude things like popularity or the acceptance of your friends. If that's what you're going to live your life for, you realize you're living a very narrow kind of a life if that's your end. Because if that's your end, you're not going to do things like love Christ. You've just excluded that possibility from your life. So we're not asking you to live a kind of narrow, confined life. We're asking you to live in the freedom of knowing which direction you're moving and moving in that direction. That's what the Apostle Paul did. He moved toward Christ, and it was a free way of living. If it's narrow, well, it's a rich kind of narrow. Yes, it's a narrow way, but it leads to life. You may only be able to sail your boat upon one current of the sea, but if it's toward Christ, it's the richest, it's the deepest of all the currents of the sea. Paul's mind, therefore, in the matter is a kind of a first argument that this is doable, This is possible. This isn't just theory. Here's someone who did it. History attests to many who did it. You can do it. You can live this life by the help of Christ. So that's a sort of non-argument argument that I want to introduce with it. Now, secondly, with just the time we have left, another not complete, don't have time for that, but sort of argument then, why should Christ Great, that was for Paul. Why should Christ be the end of your life? And the second argument is a sort of response to an objection. That objection is you think Christ and no more. Seems a good class. However, if we're talking about an ultimate end, shouldn't that be God? 
why Christ? Isn't God really the ultimate end of life? Why, why this idea of Christ? I'm tempted to offer a concession here because, and here I offer it, the triune God cannot be divided into parts. That is true. He is one undivided whole in his essence. So when we're thinking of God, yes, thinking of Christ, not dividing him into parts. So I concede that. But the reason I'm hesitant even there is because although that's true, it can prop up an unhelpful perspective of Christ that our age is particularly vulnerable to. The SNEPs, I think might be in here, maybe not. SNEPs went with my wife and me uh, yesterday to New Harmony, if you've ever been there. There's a roofless church, it's kind of an open garden area. And it was begun by the Harmonists, started New Harmony there, maybe a little later, I don't know the exact history. But they very much valued a complete unity of all people without consideration for differences of religious viewpoints. So if you walk into this roofless garden, very beautiful place, and you walk down the middle and there's this large kind of roof, interestingly enough, but it's a narrow roof here, and in the middle, there's a statue. So we stood staring at the statue for a while, uncertain what it was. It looks like a sort of figure seated, sitting on angels, underneath a lamb, and on the top, a dove. So we thought, of course, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, perhaps. It's actually Mary, Son, and Holy Spirit, but... The people who commissioned this statue commissioned it to a Jewish sculptor, put his signature on the back and said, by the way, I'm still a Jew, (laughs) but you can read it. But when they requested a statue, their request was, we want the spirit presented symbolically as a dove, but we don't want anything else theologically beyond that. Because the Spirit brings unity to all religions, all peoples, and we don't want any divisive religious beliefs beyond that. That is an extreme, but that is our age. It's an age of pluralism. It's an age when everyone can believe what they believe and be somewhat equally true when it comes to religious things. The notion of an exclusive Christ is very offensive. You can believe in an inclusive God. That's fine. You can say God. You can talk about God. You can pray about God in public, in front of people. There's no problem. But you cannot talk about Jesus Christ. And so what I want to fight against by this course, by this series of lessons, is any sense of, I want to live my life all out for God with a sort of pluralistic view that that's in any way bigger than living your life all out for Christ. Christ is God. And in our day, It's even more necessary that we assert that firmly and confidently. Christ is God. Not all roads lead to God. Christ leads to God. Christ is God. So when we are speaking of Christ and no more, you can say, well, shouldn't God be our aim? In a sense, yes. Christ is God. Christ should be our aim. So I'm careful in this course, because of where we find ourselves in history, to reassert Christ as the focus. Christ is the divinity. You can live your life for God and it not even be God, and you waste your life. Christ is what we live our life for. Philip, you remember, thought Christ somewhat of a narrow aim in life, and so he said, show us the Father, who's big and great. Show us him, and man, we will be satisfied. He said, Philip, have I been with you so long? You see me, you see the Father, meaning I'm more one with the Father in my essence than you recognize me to be. When we think of Christ, we tend to think of him as a great, 
and a very narrow focus. When we think of God, he's a great and a broad focus, but that's not true. Christ is God. We want to avoid the tendency to be, in our day, sort of closet Arians who think Christ is like God. I mean, he's, he's the son of God. But in the way we practically live our lives, we're more comfortable talking with others about God and not about Christ. When you assent to the early creeds of Christendom, Council of Nicaea, the Council of Chalcedon, at that point, you are not done wrestling with a full conviction in Christ's deity. There is a sort of theoretical acceptance of that that doesn't play itself out in life, in the pluralist. And there is a conviction of Christ as God. And if my goal in this class is to compel you and to urge you to make Christ the aim of your life over everything else, I cannot do that if you are not convinced in conviction as much as in creed that when you are thinking of Christ, you are thinking of God. You're thinking of the one self-sufficient, independent being in the universe. That's Christ. He's not anything less than that. When he becomes a man, it's easier for us to think of him as less than that, but he's not. He is God, and that must be our conviction if we're to follow him. We have to believe that when we think of Christ in him, the whole fullness of deity, not a part, not a third, but the whole fullness of deity dwells bodily. If we're seeing God more clearly, it's only because, as Paul wrote, God has shown in our hearts to give the light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ. We have to continue looking at that face to see the glory of God. That's the venue. That's where we come to Christ. So he is the end of the life that we are living. So the details that you're going to hear in this course are important, but possibly none of them are more important than this detail, that Christ is God. Very God of very God. It's been said You can agree or disagree, but it has been said that a mother and a father who truly, deeply, biblically love each other cannot ultimately fail as parents because they've reached kind of the first uniting principle of family. Similarly, if you hold fast to this belief that Christ is God, not just as a thought, but in fact, in a sense, you cannot fail in the way you live your life. This is the faith that we need to live a consistent life toward Christ, to really believe that he's not small or narrow. If you believe Christ narrow in any sense, he's not enough to uphold one month of your life. But if you believe that Christ really is God, you can pursue him an entire lifetime. The reason many who affirm Christ's deity aren't moving northward toward him is because they see his deity, his godhood, as if it were a sort of data we accept and put in the memory bank but not as though it were a real thing. And so in other words, they don't accept his godhood. They don't fully see his godhood as being God. They're like those two disciples that were met by Jesus on the road after his resurrection. Their hearts, they burnt as they talked to this man, but they didn't really understand who he was until he disappeared. And then they realized this is Christ. Similarly, you can walk with Christ many years of your life and be a true follower of Christ, and your heart burns when you hear the message, but in your life you see little growth until your eyes are opened by faith and you see, you actually see, oh, I saw him, but I didn't see him. And it's that view of the deity, the Godhood of Jesus Christ, his immensity, his awesomeness, that's what compels us to move in his direction.
When Christ speaks, our hearts burn because we know that behind this data of Jesus is God is this living truth. You might see the binary, the ones and the zeros on the screen. Jesus is God. But you know behind that there's a misty ocean breeze. There are caves. There are caverns. There are oceans. There's a reality behind the mere information presented. So we have to get to that reality. Of course, everyone thinks he sees the whole picture until he sees the whole picture. You think you understand life until you fly in an airplane and you look out the window and you see all the ants driving their cars. Or you think, every woman, she'll think, I get what's going on in the world until you travel to another country and you see a billboard in another language and your whole way of thinking starts to get shaken. We all think that we see Christ as God until you see Christ as God, until you see that more deeply. Some see this fact through eyelids that are closed like the Emmaus-bound disciples. Others open their eyes and fall on the Mount of Transfiguration to see him as he is. I think that's the reason that Paul, himself seeing Christ, writes this prayer that the God of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of glory, may give you the spirit of wisdom and of revelation in the knowledge of Him, having the eyes of your hearts enlightened. They have to have light. They have to be opened to truth, even as believers. I'm not focused here exactly on what we may do to shift our perspective. From Christ as God to Christ as very God, I hope that this course itself as you continue with it, will give you ways to do that. But I think maybe a starting point, if you want something practical as a starting point to seeing Christ as God, as He is, begins sort of with counsel that Paul himself gives. He says, if anyone imagines that he knows something, he doesn't yet know as he ought to know. But if anyone loves God, he is known by God. I'm not suggesting abandoned truth I am not suggesting that. Truth is all we have in this world, truth of Christ. But what I am saying is, be open to the possibility that your view of Christ, Christ as God, Christ as He is, is less than Christ really is. That is the necessary starting point. And that has to be joined with what Paul says here, a love for God, meaning a a compulsion, a desire to continue, not to shrink back, oh, I don't understand, I don't know Christ as he is, he's not ruling my life. No, to recognize that in humility and a love for God to continue forward and say, well, I'm going to. Whatever it takes, I'm going to. For you, those are the landmarks right now pushing you toward Christ. You may need to just know more about Christ, meditate on that until it seeps into you. Take a simple thought like the Trinity that Christ is one in essence with God. Or find a simple passage about Christ and meditate upon it. If you read it one time and assume I've got the data, you don't have it. You have to meditate upon it and by God's help, let the baskets be full and overflowing. Really see Christ as He is. Which, by the way, is why Scripture memory is a very... John Piper has alluded to this. Scripture memory is important even if you forget the verses you memorize. Because as you are memorizing them, you have to meditate on what you're memorizing. So Christ then is the worthy object of the examined life because he is God. And I don't have space 
here. Maybe there's not space in the world to convince you fully why God should be the ultimate end of your life. You were created for him. You can read Edwards or you can read Piper and find out about that. If you're not convinced of God being the worthy end, I'm not going to convince you of that now. My argument right now is that God should be the end and Christ is God. Therefore, he ought to be the end of your life. And you won't follow in that direction unless you're convinced of that in a real sort of way. Jesus is the only worthy end of the examined life. That means that, in conclusion, you cannot have two ends of your life. You can't be moving in two directions. And besides, if you have Christ as an end, what would the other end be? You don't need one. When Paul speaks of the surpassing worth or value of knowing Christ, what does that value surpass? Whatever else you want. Everything else, everything else in your job, your family, the worth of knowing Christ surpasses all of that. You can't have two ends. He needs to be the single end of your life. Does a satisfied life for you require that you have Christ, but also wealth, also a savings account? Does the final end of your life require that you have Christ, but that you also have good health, that you also have physical safety, that no one robs your house, that no one harms you? Is that necessary for you to live a satisfied life? For you to live a satisfied life, do you have to have Christ? Yes, as your aim and your end, but also diverting just a little to the side as an end of your life. You also need a family. You also need close friends. And the argument of this class is if Christ is the end of your life, if close friends move you toward Christ, then yes, you should have them. If a family moves you toward Christ, then all, by all means, have a family. If having money in the bank moves you toward Christ, then have money in the bank. But you have to treat those details of your life like a shoe. None of you at this moment, I think, were just thinking about your left shoe. None of you. Because the shoe just gets you places. You just keep it on your foot and it just gets you places. You don't live your life for your shoe. Family, money, security, safety, health, other dreams and ambitions you have, those are fine. But they just get you to Christ. That's all they're there for. And if your shoe ripped in half, the sole was falling off, and you couldn't walk anymore because it was stopping you, you would take off your shoe. So the argument of this class is that Christ needs to be at the end of your life. Anything that moves you in the direction of Christ, praise the Lord, keep it, but be willing in a moment to lose it if it keeps you from Christ. That's the life lived in his direction. And I hope that I have at least begun to urge you to ask yourself, what am I living for in practice? These lessons that follow in the coming weeks will do two things. One, they will somewhat without my intention, continue putting Christ before you as beautiful and glorious and worth living your life for. That's necessary. The second thing that we'll be doing in this class is specifically after perhaps the fourth class, we will try to be very specific and practical in what that would mean in your life. How could you measure if you were really doing that? My prayer is that in your inmost person and as evidenced by your actual life that you would have one overwhelming desire and vision for Christ and for no more. Let's pray together. Savior, Savior, we offer you our 
few loaves of bread and our small fish. And our request is that we would not realize too late in life what it really looks like to live with you as our single and consuming passion. I pray that you would make clear to us in the weeks to come what it means to do small and menial, faithful things in the direction of Christ. I pray for we who are younger that you would use um, these lessons to help us to continue to dream in large ways of how to glorify you, but to get out of bed in the morning, to be faithful in our friendships, to be faithful in family, in school. I pray that you would help us to discipline ourselves for the purpose of godliness, to see the small tasks as central to moving toward Christ, that we might be faithful in little I pray for those who are older, who have been given more experience in life, have seen more of the ups and downs of what this life brings with it. Lord, I pray that you would use this class as a blessing to them, as an encouragement and a refreshment, a reminder of, of the centrality of our Savior, of his eagerness for us to follow after him, of his willingness to help and to support us and how failures don't need to hinder us from continuing to press on vigorously. I pray that you would um, help all of us with one heart and with one mind to love the Lord Jesus Christ with an incorruptible love. It's in his name, your name, that we pray these things. 